Well, hello, family. Good to see you guys. If it's been uh, a week since you heard it, let me tell you, Jesus loves you. Open your Bibles to Genesis 6, verse 9. Genesis 6, verse 9. Uh, we are going to pick up right where we left off uh, last week in the, in the life of Noah. How about I do this? Is that better? All right. I'm getting a little feedback up here now. All right. Uh, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. And finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Niels. Crossway, this is God's word. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, we love you. Uh, we thank you for being our father and our caretaker. And I, and Lord, I would like to just pray for my father today as he's recovering from surgery. Would you please heal his body, give him sleep uh, and rest tonight, and just remind him that you love him. You really do love him. Lord, you say that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. So, Lord, would you do today what I cannot do myself? Would you feed your lambs? We're hungry. And I ask it in the sacred name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, one point that Genesis really wants us to grasp by this uh, point in the story is that sin is not just some small nuisance that kind of dies off after a generation. Sin endures. 
And not only that, it spreads. It spreads from two individuals to an entire family to entire groups of people that are living together. And this week we see that human sin has now spread to every person on the planet. Sin is the universal problem of humankind, and it causes multidimensional destruction on each of those fundamental relationships that make up reality. And God is, at this story, part of the story, God looks over everything that he's created and that he's organized at this point in history, and he sees what, he's, what has happened. He sees that instead of it being full of cultivated land and cultivated creatures and beauty and order, it is full, the earth is completely full of corruption and chaos. All of his handiwork has been undone by the very humans he created to work alongside him. And so God declares that he must do something about all of this. He cannot let this destruction go on century after century and just pretend he's ignoring it. He must respond. And he says that he will respond in a decisive way. Today we're going to see that God's response to our sin is righteous judgment and amazing grace. God's response to our sin is righteous judgment and amazing grace. We're going to look at each of those in turn today. First of all, God's judgment is, is destroying what we have already destroyed. God's judgment is destroying what we have already destroyed. If you'll go with me to verse 11 through 13, it's right here. Now the earth was corrupt. We're going to come back to that word. He saw that the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way in the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So let's be honest. God's judgment is uh, is something that we're kind of uncomfortable talking about. Amen? Uh, it's not really a touchy-feely kind of topic. We don't like bringing it up. We don't really like talking about it a whole lot. Uh, we tend to think that God should just be non-judgmental in all his ways in every situation. You know, like me. Right? Isn't that how we think? And so we can hear God in, in, the, in this text. That God said that he's going to destroy all human and animal life. And it can kind of sound to us like he's like throwing this temper tantrum. Like he's like a little three-year-old that's shaking his fist and kicking his feet. Right? Like, um, he just kind of woke up one day in a bad mood. And he's going to smite everybody. Or like, God's, you know what, he's just not getting his way. We're just not doing what he wants, and he's not getting his way, so he's going to flex his muscles, pitch a fit, and wipe out all the humans. That's kind of how we can read that. But I want to suggest that that's, a, that's not what God's doing here. That's why we need to read the Bible slowly. Okay? We miss stuff. There's some things that are actually right here in this text that would help us frame God's judgment as righteous, and I would say even reasonable, reasonable ju judgment. Okay, 
Well, one of these things is this. The word um, that's translated corrupt or ruined and the word for destroy, did you know that's exactly the same word in Hebrew? I don't know why that the English translations have translated those two different words. Those are the exact same words. And I think that matters. God looks and sees that all humans, without exception, have participated in destroying his earth, and so his creation. And so in response, God declares he's going to bring about the fullness, to fullness, the destruction that humans have begun. That humans have started. In other words, God's judgment on, uh, on uh, humanity is not emotional fit of rage or something. God is merely completing or finalizing what we have already done. His judgment is completely fair. In fact, his judgment's actually good for the rest of his creation. God says that he's been patient for many, many years and many generations, but people have uh, taken advantage of that kindness. Instead of repenting, they've increased in their wickedness. They've invented new ways to resist and rebel God and get around his rules and get around his laws and find the loopholes and all that. And so by this final act of destruction, God is actually putting an end to the violence and the vandalism which we polluted the earth. He's like saying, hey, this isn't good for anyone, and you know what, I'm just going to stop it, because they're not stopping it. Here's another clue in the text that helps us reframe God's judgment of human sin. Uh, the word for corrupt in the original Hebrew language means to ruin or destroy. That's what corrupt means, like corrosive. It's ruined now or destroyed, okay? So with that in mind, let's reread a couple of these verses. You ready? It has a little bit of a different meaning. The earth was ruined in God's eyes. God saw that the earth was ruined, for all flesh had ruined their way. So human sin is not merely rebelling against God and his laws or rebelling against the way that he has structured reality and the categories. That is part of it, but Genesis is telling us here that that's not the only thing that sin is. Uh, Genesis is teaching us that sin is also a ruining or a spoiling of what God has created and designed good, which means there's actually a way to follow the rules and still ruin stuff. Let that scramble your categories. It's kind of like this. This is what, what the text, I think, is kind of bringing out. Um, it's kind of like someone, like, think of being in a really long ro romantic relationship, like a three-year relationship. You invest a lot of time and money and love and emails and trips and all this into this relationship with this person that you really care about. And, and, and let's just say your song, I'm just going to pick a song out of the clear blue sky I don't, you know, does it mean anything? Scarborough Fair. Let's just say by Simon and Garfunkel. Let's just say that's your song. This is not autobiographical, okay? Um, let's just say it's Scarborough Fair, okay, by Simon and Garfunkel. And so whenever that song came on, let's just say you thought of that person. Okay? But they broke up with you. Or you broke up with them. And let's say it was a really nasty breakup. It was not amicable. Like maybe you had to break up with them because some stuff they did. Right? 
It was a painful breakup. You cannot listen to Scarborough Fair now. Why? Because they ruined a great song for you. In fact, the ruining, the spoiling, goes so deep to your heart, you can't listen to any Simon and Garfunkel song. You had to throw out all of your albums. You had to get rid of all of them. And you were actually happy to do it. That's how much the music was ruined that you used to enjoy. What used to be really enjoyable for you is now totally, completely ruined because of them. Well, that's what all humans have done to God's creation from God's perspective. It said it grieved him to his very heart, right? That was last week. This is the doctrine of universal human depravity. We have ruined the beautiful music that God has made. How? By filling the earth with the sounds of violence and sounds of tears. Violence means to violate, right? It means to violate by imposing your will on someone or something else without asking permission. You're just going to do what you want to do. So violence doesn't have to be physical. Right? Genesis confronts you and me with this very uncomfortable truth. We have and we continue today to ruin God's world by violating his categories, violating his commandments, violating our job descriptions in, in, in the world. So instead of being gardeners and cultivators of what God has created, we have chosen and continue to choose to become vandalizers or exploiters of what he's made. We vandalize or exploit God's covenant of marriage. We vandalize and exploit the environment. Other image bearers of various age groups, the purpose of work, and even ourselves. So God clearly uh, uh, names and declares the source of this universal vandalism and spoiling as all flesh. That's the phrase he uses repeatedly. It's because of all flesh has done this. Notice, not some flesh, right? That's not what the text says. Not most flesh. What's the text say? All flesh, right? And it's not the moon or the rivers or something that's caused this ruining. It's the humans that have done it to the moon and the rivers and the mountains and everything else. It says it's us. It's humans. God proclaims that all flesh are actively and currently participating in the vandalizing, exploiting, or spoiling of what he has created good. Guess what? Guess what? That includes you and me. Not one of us is exempt, exempt from this declaration that God makes over what he sees. Now let's just take a, take a step back and remember 
the purpose of Genesis, we talked about this the first couple of weeks, the very purpose of these first 11 chapters of Genesis is to give us a framework, to give us a story to understand reality as we are bumping up against it, to help us make sense of what we're bumping up against every day, right? And so here's my question. How does this particular truth, this reality, the doctrine of, 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 of human depravity, how does that truth, get this, impact our evangelism to the world? How do you think it would impact our evangelizing to the world? I think that it means that our witness as Christians to society must include an honest confession of our sin. That we, believers in God, we must admit that we also participate in the decreation of God's world. This means that we Christians have also, get this, contributed knowingly and unknowingly to the coming judgment of God. Why? Because we are part of all flesh. Let me come at this from a little bit of a different perspective, okay? The non-believers that I've been having conversations with recently, um, they're looking at the brokenness of the world around us, and it scares them. Just so you know, if you don't talk to a lot of non-believers, and I hope that we will be doing more of that, but it makes them nervous, and it makes them sad too. They're troubled by it just like you are, just like I am, okay? But here's what they hear coming from churches and Christians, basically, in response. They hear something like this. Yes, the world is severely broken, but we do not contribute to its brokenness at all. We're the good guys. And guess what? They find that response unbelievable, not believable, to a group of people who claim to hold to the doctrine of universal human depravity. They don't know, how do we square that circle? Right? 20 years ago this month, Vaughn Alex was working behind the counter of American Airlines. There's a picture of him right there. Two men came up really uh, quickly. They were running late. They came up to his counter. Uh, instead of bumping them to a later flight, which was an available option to him, he used the opportunity to show his two trainees that were right there that he was training, he used that opportunity to show his trainees how to serve customers who are running late, how to take care of them so that they can get on their flight even though they're late. Alex did his job, get this, to the best of his ability. He checked IDs, he asked security questions, uh, he flagged their bags for extra screening, and mind you, this is all before September 11th and the TSA was even invented, okay? Later in that day, he learned that those two passengers that he assisted in boarding that flight were part of the terrorist group that hijacked Flight 77, which crashed into the Pentagon. And he helped them get on their flight. 
And if the shock of that was not devastating enough for this poor guy, Vaughn, just days earlier, had convinced a dear friend of his to book that same flight to take a vacation since she had retired. He had personally signed his signature to her flight, her ticket. Upon hearing this news at works, Alex said, and I quote, I did it, didn't I? I did it, didn't I? He had. He had unwittingly assisted terrorists in completing their violent mission of destroying lives. Alex has had a long road in healing from his unintentional contribution to those deaths. And part of that healing for him has come by accepting what he did, but also accepting the agonizing journey of sharing his story with other people and being public about that. What am I saying? What's the point? The point is, listen, no matter how hard we try to do the right thing, we contribute to the ruining of God's creation. And I hope that really lands on you guys with some force. So what? Well, therefore, our witness to the gospel becomes much more believable when Christians admit that we, too, are part of all flesh. That we have filled the world with violence, too. This is why the church, across centuries and centuries, has prayed this public prayer as part of her weekly worship gathering, because it's a formative kind of prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. You see, when non-believers hear you and I talking like this and publicly admitting that we too are contributors to the ruining of the earth, that we too deserve God's judgment as much as they do, our message of salvation by grace alone becomes much more believable to them. Why? Because we're saying we need grace too, really badly. Does anybody like getting a really good deal on a book, like cheap books? Yes, I do too. One of my favorite things to do is to share a really good book with other people. And I have found, like many of you, I suspect, that there is one particular company that can get exactly the book that I want, ship it, and have it on my doorstep in two days. But last year, I found myself in uh, quite the moral quandary, I would say. I found out that I had purchased a book from this particular seller that was a fake. It was a counterfeit. I'd never even heard of someone taking the time and resources to counterfeit a physical book. This is it. It's a great book, by the way. But this is a total fake made somewhere else with probably really awful materials. Okay? The business that I used for its efficiency and convenience was either, and here's, the, here's the, the other one. This is the real one. And if you got this one first, you wouldn't be able to know because you didn't have the real one to compare it with. Here's the real one. They look pretty close, don't they? 
That's how good they are. And so this business that I used for its efficiency and convenience was either knowingly or unknowingly shipping out counterfeit books to the planet, to the whole world, not just to me. Which means not only did the true author not get paid, but her book sales numbers were negatively impacted as well. So that when her publisher looked at those numbers, they wouldn't hire her for another contract. That's how the publishing industry works, by the way. Okay? The numbers falsely claim that she was not connecting with her intended audience. It took her three years to write that book of her life, by the way. Because a lot of it's about her life. So after a little bit of digging uh, online, I found that this author had lost approximately $375,000 and could have lost future contracts all because these counterfeit books were saturating the Christian market through a particular distributor. And I wrote her publisher about it. And guess what? I had helped it happen. I helped her lose money. Because that money went to the thief. It didn't go to her. I had unknowingly participated in the damage of her career, of her salary, and even as her confidence as an author. All those relationships, and even more so, were impacted by the very same thing, that, that purchase, instead of just buying it direct from our publisher. But you know what? That experience made me think deeply about all the other ways that I am personally contributing and participating to corrupt systems or ruining God's creation without even knowing it. And thinking I'm a good person because I got a good deal. The fact that I didn't mean to as a Christian does not undo the real damage that was done to real people made in the image of God. It doesn't undo that at all. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Part of our witness to the world is to humbly, regularly confess that we are part of all flesh. We have contributed to the ruining of God's world and his coming judgment as well. We need to say that with our mouth from time to time and to the people that we are witnessing to and sharing the gospel with. But judgment is not the only way that God has responded to our sins. And this is the good news of the passage. God has provided rescue through one righteous man. The good news is that God has provided rescue through one righteous man. It's here in the text, verse 9, and then we're going to drop down to 17 and 18, okay? These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. No one else, by the way, has talked about as highly as, as this besides Noah. Abraham comes close. Verse 17, for behold, this is God talking, for behold, he's talking to Noah, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I, but I will establish my covenant with you. 
and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. And so God says he's going to ruin what we're already ruined by bringing down his judgment in the form of a watery flood. But before he does this, God reveals his plan in advance to one man, Noah. The fact that God would reveal his will ahead of time to any human at all, that in and of itself is grace. And he does it to this one man, Noah. And so guys, I really want you to get this. Before God judges the world, God has already provided a rescue plan for the very world he's about to judge. It's almost like he doesn't want them to die or something. I mean, this is God's pattern over and over and over throughout the entire Bible. From Genesis to to Revelation, God, here he provides a way of rescue through this one man, Noah, this righteous man, Noah. Noah was righteous and blameless, the text says, but that does not mean that he was sinless. It doesn't mean that he was morally perfect. That's not what righteous means. I mean, in fact, later on in the in this series, we're going to see that uh, Noah really sins when he lands in the new creation. <laughs> the text says that he's blameless compared to the others that are living in his generation. That's all, which means it must have been pretty bad, right? It means that Noah's heart, even though he sinned, his heart was fundamentally turned towards God. He walked with God. He sinned, but yet he wanted God and whatever God wanted to do. That's what that means. Unlike the other people on earth, he had faith and trust in God at the end of the day. In fact, we can go to the New Testament to help us. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 7 says, By faith, by faith. That means believing in God, by trusting in everything that came out of God's mouth. Okay, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Do you know that God saves entire households? It says it right there. Isn't that good news? By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We're, sa- we're all saved the same way, by faith in God. Noah's faith demonstrated through his visible obedience to God's command, his faith was counted as righteousness. And so here's the thing, and this is what's so cool to me. Through the faith of Noah, others were saved. Did you catch that? Through the faith of Noah, other people were saved, eight in all. His wife, sons, and daughters-in-law. There is no way they could survive God's flood on their own, but God provided an instrument of salvation, an ark built by Noah, and God provided the means of appropriating that instrument of salvation, the faith of Noah, the faith of Noah and God's promise. God said he's going to do it, and so I believe he's going to do it, so I better do this. 
He didn't make his covenant with everyone in the family. He made his covenant with this one person. But yet they were all blessed. God says he's going to make a covenant only with Noah. He says with you, right? And yet his entire family benefits from that. His entire family is rescued and saved from God's judgment. Listen, they are the recipients of the rescue. Why? Because of the faith and the obedience of Noah. They are saved from the flood of judgment. Why? Because they are united to Noah. Not because of anything in them, but because they're united to Noah. They entered into Noah's ark. They are in Noah, right? (laughs) And so they're saved. Do you see the gospel here? Listen, guys. This is what we need to understand. There is coming another judgment day the likes of which the earth has never seen, where God is going to ruin what we have continued to ruin far more than a couple of generations with our own sin. But this is going to be a final judgment because it's going to be the last time. God's going to make sure it's the last time and it doesn't happen again because he's going to destroy even sin. But here's the good news, that God has provided one righteous man to rescue us. And he is way more righteous than Noah because his faith was perfect and because his obedience in a corrupt generation was flawless. It is through the faith and the obedience of Jesus that many are saved, that many, many more than eight okay, many more than eight are saved through the faith and obedience of Jesus. Like, and aren't you glad for that? And that's why he's the true and better Noah. It's the only reason why I'm saved. And Romans 5.17 spells this out even more clearly. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? It means that Christians, we can honestly confess and grieve over our sins. We can call it by its right name. Whether they be intentional or unintentional, we can pray that prayer honestly and openly. That the gospel makes it possible for us to do this because the gospel of Jesus tells us we are not saved Uh, by our own righteousness. We are only saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we inherit that. It's imputed into us. Okay? Yeah, you may be, compared to the rest of the world, compared to your neighbors and compared to your coworkers, you may look more righteous than them. But not compared to Jesus. How's that grab you? So what? So stop talking about how righteous you are. I mean, that's a pretty simple application, but how about this? Stop thinking about how righteous you are. 
when you see the unrighteous around you? How about that? How about you stop placing your trust in your morality, in your goodness, in your righteousness, and instead place your trust in Christ? And I'm talking to the Christians in the room, right? Put your trust in Christ's righteousness, in Christ's obedience, in Christ's faith in the Father. He is the true and better Noah. He is the ark. He didn't build an ark. He is himself the ark (laughs) built by obedient faith in the Father that saves all who enter it. So enter it. Well, I did that once. Well, keep doing it. Keep going into Christ. Keep entering Christ. Keep Listen, get out of your righteousness and get into Christ's righteousness day after day after day. Or if you're like me, I got to do it hour by hour because I'm always like, not. I'm not there. Get out of your righteousness and get into Christ's righteousness. How? By faith in him, by trusting what he has done, right? Listen, confess your sin. Don't say I'm not a part of any of this. Say, I'm a part of all of this. I'm a part of this. And praise God, I need Jesus, and he's covered me, right? Confess your sin, trust in Christ, and your conscience will be washed clean. Like taking a bath. That's his promise of peace to you and me. And we experience that every single time we do that. It's a fountain. It's a river of living water that never runs dry. It's ever-renewable resource. Isn't that great? And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the life that you lived, the life that you built. Because our life is based on a life we did not build, on a death we did not die, but on a Savior who gave that all for us. Father, please forgive me when I judge other people. And I think I'm part of the solution. When you've shown me, I I contribute to it, even unintentionally. Even on my best days when I'm trying really hard, I still do it. And I need you. And I pray for my people here today that they would see that too in them and they would go to you and get grace and get your love your forgiveness, and that we would be a better witness to the world. That's why you put Crossway here. That skeptics would come to know Jesus. And it's in your great and sacred name I pray all these things. Amen.